0: Welcome to the Social World Podcast. My name is David Niven. I trained as a social worker and have been a former chair of the British Association of Social Workers. Now, I currently run my own company, training people in the social care world. This podcast is going to be weekly and it will have comment and stories from the social world. Whatever's current, whatever's relevant, it will have interviews with stimulating guests Now, your comments are going to be very welcome. The website is www.dnivenassociates.co.uk and the Twitter address is at Dave Niven. So thanks for listening. We're going to start this week's inaugural podcast with a little bit of history. Now, I wonder how many people are aware of the case of a boy called Dennis O'Neill. He was about 13 at the time in 1945. So we're looking at the end of the Second World War. Now, his family couldn't cope, and him and his younger brother were uh, moved into foster care, or cared for by others at the time, as it was called. And they were moved to a farm on the borders of Wales and England, And there was just the farmer and the farmer's wife and these two boys. They were treated abominably. They were treated like animals. Dennis, being the eldest, bore the brunt of the farmer's uh, cruelty. He was beaten, he was starved, and he was just generally made to feel absolutely awful. His, his, His situation was akin to Slavery, and his younger brother witnessed all of this. Although to be fair, he wasn't actually uh, abused as badly as Dennis was. There was even stories that they were so hungry that Dennis was caught one night crawling across the farmyard to try and get a hold of even a turnip or something like that, and for that he was beaten severely. Now, one night it just went on and on too much and the farmer actually killed him. The country went into an uproar, and we all know recently about high-profile cases that we've all heard of of children dying and how they changed not just the mood, but legislation, regulation, etc. in this country. Well, this had that effect in 1945. Dennis was mourned by virtually the entire country. The uh, couple, the adults, the farmer, his wife, were convicted and imprisoned. But his brother lived on, and now is in his 70s. One thing that people didn't realise, though, was that Dennis' story provoked such an outcry that some of the major writers and thinkers of the time took up his case and took up The issues arising from his case. And one of these people was Agatha Christie, the writer. And she based a story on that that she called Three Blind Mice. That turned into the play that is still running today in the West End of London called The Mouse Trap. Now, Dennis's brother has never seen that play. And I was part of a a BBC documentary that actually looked at this. And the BBC took him to London, to see this play, which essentially was looking at his own life. It was unbelievable. The emotion that this invoked and the story that he'd never seen before represented on on stage brought it all back, and there was quite a lot of discussion about how it had impacted on him and how it had influenced his behaviour as a parent himself now and as a grandparent. Now this established eventually the 1948 Children Act. This um, followed on from children's committees and children's officers being placed in each local authority and it created a Parliamentary Care of Children Committee in 1945. Because what had happened an awful lot was that the war landed more than a million children who were evacuated from town centres onto local councils, who really had inadequate resources to care for them. Many, like Dennis, were placed in foster homes and became emotionally disturbed. They were they were reacted by bedwetting, stealing, running away, challenging adults. And after the war, many children who had no families to return to became what was called nobody's children. Dennis was just one casualty. Probably among hundreds, but the Children Act in nineteen forty-eight finally brought about responsibility for children that had been these had been formally dealt with under the Poor Law, and committees were set up. There were some quirky things, but we can understand that now. That it was only at the beginning. There was a regulation put in place that every child placed in a foster home had to be visited within six weeks of placement. Well, of course, these days the, the placement itself has to be vetted and, and made uh, appropriate and, and actually agreed to before any child is placed there. But then it was six weeks afterwards they had to be inspected. And also the, these committees, the local committees in uh, authorities up and down the land were obliged to have at least three women on it because it was considered that women were far better at understanding the needs of children than men. So this really has been the basis on which social workers have acted ever since, the basis of children's needs, the basis of regulation, and the basis of good, appropriate care. So... What's going on today? Well, over the last few weeks, I've done many radio interviews and some television interviews about the terrible tragedies of children that seem to be arising week on week here, as serious case reviews report. Most of these children have died at the hands of their parents, and always there's the overarching question, could more have been done? Now, every child that's hurt is an individual tragedy, and anybody who's had an opportunity to prevent it have got to search their own consciences, and this could be statutory workers, or it could be neighbours, or it could be family. But we've got to look at the situation as a whole. In the last five years in England and Wales, there's been about a 40% increase year-on-year in child protection referrals to agencies. And in the same amount of years, the number of children on child protection plans has gone up from 27,000 to 44,000. So as a backdrop to this, social services departments up and down the country have been suffering significant cuts in their funding, and they've increasingly found it difficult to recruit experienced staff. So subsequently, there are some authorities where the vacancy rate is huge, and if they're lucky, they get agency staff, but that brings with it its own problems in terms of continuity and in terms of uh, management in terms of bonding and in terms of actually working together and the the existing staff are even more overloaded so it's the plates on the end of a stick type circus trick that you see running around just desperately trying to keep these plates going because they've got too high caseloads, they're overloaded they're overheating and in effect the danger to children is is increased Now, the Prime Minister the other day praised social workers. He called it a noble profession, uh, a noble part of society, and something that people should be very proud of. Fine, thanks, David Cameron. But that's not enough. That's not enough. I use the analogy that if the current childcare social work provision in this country is, a, is is at the moment, it's like being adrift on a raft after a shipwreck, right? And the boat comes over the horizon, you think, oh, great, rescue, thank God for that. And it stops beside you, sits, throws down some water, you have a drink, which you dearly need, but then the boat just goes away again. No, no real rescue No real resources, just a momentary lapse and a momentary piece of hope that soon gets dashed. Now we need a major overhaul, I think, in this country. Major. Fundamental extra resourcing. Now I know there's training initiatives are being discussed, things are being implemented, but they're not enough. And I'm not sure if it's joined up. I'm not sure if the actual jigsaw is being constructed in a proper way. Because we're talking far more than just frontline social work. It's all the people whose responsibility it is within the child protection system, the multi-agency response, if you like, to support. Now, so many restructurings are taking place at the moment. So many changes are taking place. So many cuts are being made in the system. So many jobs are being lost that whoever ends up in particular jobs that are responsible to actually communicate with each other in, say, the police, to the social services, to education, to health, whatever. These people don't know each other anymore. They don't even know sometimes if anybody's in the post that they're meant to be liaising with. They don't know if anybody's there as they're meant to get together and actually share information, which is always the cry when a child death occurs. Now, in comparison to many other European countries, the UK record is pretty good in terms of child deaths. Now, one child death is too many, but comparatively speaking is what I'm saying. We've actually got to look at this in the whole. We might have exhausted social workers, we might have overloaded systems, we might have overheated social policy, but at the same time, there's an awful lot of children whose lives are being improved by the work that's being done by the frontline staff in interrupting abuse and in making children safe. And every single day, social workers are preventing more parents killing their children. Most of the public get their information, their knowledge, their opinions, from some form of media or other. Now, whether it's broadcast media, whether it's written media, whether it's social media, I mean, these days it's hugely variable. And it does, though, still maintain a truism that this is where the world's opinions are formed. And the public, if they see day upon day, drip after drip after drip of criticism and negativity about social workers, effectively always being the ones that are supposedly to blame when a child dies or when a child is injured it is increasingly difficult to recruit good staff it's increasingly difficult to get people to go on to social work courses at least when it's to do with child care other social workers working with adult care and working in all the other disciplines that social work covers that's still being uh, recruited to well but Childcare social work at the moment is in a real dilemma. Now, the image of social work in the media is, to my mind, pretty significant, and the way that it's actually dealt with by the media is also quite significant. I don't think they realise sometimes, journalists and others, just how damaging throwaway comments can be, just how difficult, shock jock kind of um, self-seeking adulation can actually impact on the work of social workers and at the end of the day it's always down to this the more that social workers are vilified in the media, the more they're demonised in the media the more difficult it is the next day when a new case comes in to be able to at least get over the doorstep and make a relationship with a family where you think a child is at risk There was a really funny, tragic story, poignant, that I was personally involved with. When, after a particular event in the, um, the Houses of Parliament, we were launching an initiative on child sexual abuse, I went along to the BBC studios afterwards to give some interviews about it and try and tell people what was happening. You go into a studio, if you talk to a BBC local radio... You go into a studio, and there's about forty-six local radio stations up and down the country, and they book you up during an hour or an hour and a half for you know seven, eight, nine, ten interviews, just one after the other, all live and all about the the issue that you've just been involved with. So I sat down in front of the microphone, and um, what happened was every every. Couple of minutes, uh, somebody would come in uh, onto the air and say, "Hello, hi, I'm John, the producer. You're going to be talking to Betty, who's the presenter. This is Radio Leeds, Radio Norfolk, Radio wherever it was. Um, is that okay? That fine. And the first four of them, they went absolutely perfectly. But then the fifth, there was no producer, and I could see the clock going round to the time when we were meant to be given the interview, we meant to go live onto this radio station." And right as the clock hit the 12, you know, the minute itself, on comes the presenter. No, no producer, straight onto the presenter. And the presenter says to me, All right, everybody, hi, welcome. Now we're welcoming David Niven. Now, David is a chicken farmer, and he plays classical music to his chickens, and that improves the lay. Now, how did this start, David? Now, I had. A microsecond to make a decision do I go along and say yeah well Beethoven's fantastic and just sort of write this interview off in my mind and just wait for the next one do you say no 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 you've got the wrong thing um, I'm here to, do, to, to deal with an initiative on child sexual abuse that we actually have been involved with in the House of Parliament or whatever but just before I could say anything obviously his producer was typing away madly to him and sending him a text or something and effectively the guy says oh so sorry So sorry. And what happened next, the implications of what happened next, to my mind, show the um, very varied attitude within the media to our work. Because what the presenter said was this. He said, oh, sorry everybody, so sorry, I've made a mistake here. David is here to talk about a new initiative on child sexual abuse. Okay. So then, David, come on, what's new in child sexual abuse this week? And that was classic in terms of the way that there was a lack of thinking and a lack of engagement, a lack of seriousness, and also some kind of just sort of vague kind of frivolity when it comes to it sometimes. There's just no real depth with some people. They just want the interview. They just want to fill the segment. They haven't got the real depth of understanding of the actual process or the the subject matter itself Now, some things really get you angry some things really get you worked up and it's especially true of some things that you might have campaigned for year after year you might have actually lobbied for, you might have worked your your butt off to actually try and get people to uh, listen. And I was part of a a movement, if you like, a whole group of people in the late 90s who were determined that there should be two things. There should be a register of sex offenders in the United Kingdom where at least they could be better monitored and at least they, they would be Um, subject to sanction, following conviction. And this happened, this was achieved and it was brilliant and that became the 1997 Act that's been modified in 2003. But people forget that there was a second part to that that Act which lots of us actually worked for very hard at the time and that was called Extraterritorial Legislation and it gave... British courts, the power to prosecute British people, mainly men, who had apparently committed offences against children abroad and that the country that they were in hadn't prosecuted for whatever reason. Many other Western industrialised countries adopted similar legislation and have put that in place and have implemented it reasonably well. In the 13 odd years since this has come about, Britain has actually prosecuted, to my knowledge, about five people. And yet there are thousands of men who go abroad still, sex tourism is still thriving, and they think that if they go abroad and abuse, essentially, either little brown children as they see them, they're somehow inferior to white children at home, and that is just appalling. There are, they're known about... Europol makes regular initiatives and regular advances in trying to catch them. Law enforcement is increasing in terms of its communication, its awareness and its coordination, if you like. But the legislation that's there, that we put in place, and Baroness Lucy Faithful really pioneered this, and she was at the forefront of a, of a group of us to effectively push this through Parliament. It is an appalling indictment that this hasn't been used where lots and lots of men could have been prosecuted. And just remember this. They don't stop abusing when they come home. That's not in the nature of people who are attracted to sex, sexually attracted to children. They will continue to abuse and continue to take opportunities whenever they arise. And so all the good work that was put into it All the effort that was put in to actually trying to persuade Parliament to pass this legislation, which they did, just seems to still be on a back burner 13 years later. Now, the Online Protection Service at the Met, COPS, they do great work. They really do. And they are the ones that coordinate things from the UK with all their colleague forces abroad. But they haven't got the resources really to put this into place properly. And we're still so nervous and so hung up about things like um, witnesses on video, um, getting forensic evidence from countries that really haven't got a particularly sophisticated law enforcement systems or whatever. But these are not intractable problems. Other countries do it. Australia, Sweden, the United States, they've all moved much further forward than we have on this. And when that also comes to, it makes you think of stuff too, like the um, identification of victims. I stood I stood, on one of the upper floors of Scotland Yard, back at about that time, uh, with the head of the paedophile unit, as it was called then. And he pointed down into the courtyard, where there was a huge kind of furniture van drew up. And out of it came... Trolleys of the sort that you see at airports, you know, taking the baggage out to the planes, and three absolutely stacked full trolleys trundled off this this van, and he said, "See that? That's a raid on one house, one man." And so it seemed. It so it's it's actually been reinforced over the years. I, I've heard of situations where paedophile rings have actually been exposed, which is terrific. Men have been arrested, which is terrific. But the intelligence gathered has included things like the paedophile ring allowed people to join after enormous security checks. They're just like terrorist cells. And as well as actually being passed in terms of you being appropriate to join that ring, there was an entry fee, and the entry fee to some of the larger rings was something like 10,000 images of children. 10,000 per person. Now, this is big business. This is organised crime in a lot of ways. But the big thing is that they might have been just about keeping pace technologically. With the law enforcement side, in terms of tracking and arresting and interrupting people, on the identification of victims side, it's still woefully, inadequately resourced and funded. The The technology needs to be hugely updated. Needs, we need to have cutting-edge research when it comes to trying to find out where these victims are. Are they still being abused? Can they be interrupted? Can we help them? And that's the one I'm most interested in. I am interested in the fact that law enforcement is doing its job in terms of arresting people but in terms of finding out where they got their images in terms of finding out where these children are now and in ter- this is worldwide remember we are lagging behind and we need to have a major major investment in that type that side of the work Now, we've managed to talk about a few things today. And I hope the magazine format will continue, but we will be sprinkling in interviews. You won't have to listen to my voice the whole time. But generally, just to sort of finish up today, I'd like to talk about a current story. And that's the bit about the police apparently admitting that about at least 1,500 people were cautioned for sex offences across England in the last year. Cautioned. And that included lots who had offended against children. Now, to receive a caution for that seems, to my mind, woefully inadequate, and I don't really understand how, even if half of them had good explanations, how the rest could possibly be passed through. And I know that the Magistrates Association themselves were pretty cheesed off by this because effectively the police were acting not only as the law enforcement, but they were also acting as the judiciary in making decisions like that. Now, any sexual offence can have a long-term traumatic consequence for the victim. So that's got to be looked into carefully. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I don't care... Really, that the the historic nature of it, because, and and think of the celebrity cases that we've been listening to over the last year or two in this country. I don't care about the historic nature because, in my view, people who are sexually attracted to children are uh, chronic, are in chronic situations. There's no such thing as cure, it's the exact same as an addiction. The only question to do with that is control. Self-control, yeah, of course we have to encourage that, but it can't be relied on entirely just like other addictions could be. If you have an alcohol addiction or if you have a substance abuse addiction, I mean, or a gambling addiction or whatever it happens to be, an awful lot is put on self-control, you changing, you changing your own life. And that applies to people who are attracted to children as well. But in their case, the difference is that the victim is not mainly themselves. The victim is somebody else. And society has a responsibility to protect the vulnerable. And society, therefore, has a responsibility to exercise controls as well as self-control on that person. And so all the various sanctions, all the various restrictions, all the various legal constraints have to be constantly monitored, constantly researched, constantly updated to make it as safe as possible. The register of offenders, as I said at the beginning, was one good thing at the beginning. It was, and it still is. The only problem with that when it was brought into place was, I know it was 13 years ago, but effectively it wasn't made retrospective. So, at the time where maybe... 15 or 20,000 went on it in the first few years. If that had been made retrospective and all the people walking around who were alive who had offended against sexually offended, whether as adults or children, that would have been a quarter of a million in the United Kingdom had it been made retrospective at the time. And that, 13 years ago, was the scale of the problem of convicted people. And we all know that the actual numbers of convictions that are secured are far, far, far fewer by a factor of maybe even 5 or 10 than the numbers of actual convictions. So I think in this country we've got a a realistic view now of what dangers are out there from people that want to offend sexually or for people who are uh, inclined to offend sexually. There's got to be more work, there's got to be more initiative, there's got to be more joined-up thinking. And whether we have a national overview, uh, whether, whether it's a royal uh, commission or whether it's a, a, a full-scale inquiry that leads to a, a proper restructured presentation of, of um, those who are lined up to um, work against it, I don't know. But whatever it is, it's not there now. It's too loose, it's too under-resourced, and the people on the front line are exhausted. That's what I'd like to sort of take away as a legacy, if you like. Something that made a difference to that situation. Anyway, it's been fun putting this together. I, I do hope that you're interested in some of the things that we're going to be talking about. Over the next weeks, as I said, we'll bring in more people, more interviews and more variety to it. But just to get it underway is a great thrill for me. And if you've been listening, thank you very much.